Well, good morning, everyone. Great to see you. Thank you so much for making the commitment to come to church. I mean, it's a beautiful day out there, and they're pretty rare at this time of the year, are they not? So it's a good thing to, um, to come and prioritise the Word of God and the worship. And thank you so much to our, our worship team, just setting up the atmosphere of heaven this morning. It's beautiful. Um, it's just a, a wonderful song that we just sung, Hallowed Be, Hallowed Be Thy Name, just to remember again who God is and to remember to worship him and to put him in his rightful place because hey, the world, the world is a pretty dark and uh, difficult place right now, is it not? You know, if we um, think about just the things that have, we've seen over the last few months, uh, I, I'm considering things like, you know, what we've seen in Ukraine, which has just been incredible to watch. It's shocked us all, you know, and not too long prior to that, we saw the withdrawal out of Afghanistan and, you know, the, the atrocities that followed in the wake of all of that. But look, that's not the only trouble we're having in the world. There are five civil wars raging around the world right now, would you believe, in places like Myanmar, uh, in Mali, in fact, in Africa, uh, in places like Syria, uh, Colombia, to name a few. There are terrorist insurgencies raging in about 10 different countries throughout Africa and the Middle East as well. I mean, this world is in a bit of strife. Closer to home, you know, I mean, we see China, a uh, bit of sabre rattling going on, a lot of posturing, a lot of military build-up, and we get a little concerned about that because that's not too far from where we are. And we just walked through 27 months of pandemic which has rocked us all. I feel many of us have walked through that and come out somewhat traumatised just by what we've been exposed to and the things we've had to deal with both in our personal lives and for us in leadership as we've walked through that as a church. It's been uh, a challenge. But but now we've got an economy that's tanked. You know, the stock market fell 10% this week. Uh, We've got uh, inflation spiralling. Our supply chains are, are challenged. We've got issues with shortages of food which are now looming. And just this week, we saw an energy crisis across the east coast of Australia. I mean, we are just seemingly reeling from one crisis to another. Now, it's not the church's role to be political. I'm not trying to be political. I'm just simply making observations around what I see going on in the world around us because it affects us. But, you know, we should not be surprised when we see that sort of trouble brewing, right? Jesus told us that was going to happen. He said, you know, in this world, you'll have many troubles, But, you know, that's only half the equation. He said, but take heart because I have overcome the world. You know, we just sang it before. You take take what the enemy meant for evil and you turn it for good. You know, we're on the winning team. And that's the thing we need to think about. So when we come to church, even today, it's so important that we prioritise Jesus and that we turn our eyes to him. Because... You know, Jesus said all these things were going to happen. In fact, in Matthew 24, in, in the Gospels, it says these words. It says, actually, I better put my goggles on before I take flight. In all sorts. It says, you will hear of wars and rumours of wars. Hey, that's happening in our day. In fact, it's always happened. I was thinking about it, you know, just in my lifetime. And, you know, 59 years of age I am. And, um, look, I know I don't look it, but, you know, but 59 years of living... <laughs> You know, I remember things like Pol Pot in Cambodia. I think, remember Idi Amin in, in, um, in Uganda. I remember more recently Robert Mugabe in, um, in um, Zimbabwe. And so it goes. I mean, uh, in my lifetime, uh, Mao Zedong in, um, in China and the hor- horrific things that happened there. You know, Saddam Hussein, Augusto Pinochet in, in Chile. All these people, madmen, all of them. 
Again and again, wars and rumours of wars, oppression and people being suppressed by these dictators. You know, we've seen it, oh, you know, I could go on and on. What about the Kim dynasty in, in North Korea right now? But nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Jesus said, all these are the beginning of birth pains. Hey, but you know, Jesus is obviously speaking of those perilous times that would precede his second coming. Now, we don't know the day, but we do know that the fields are white under harvest. And as Ellen's just shared with us, you know, sometimes we get stuck and he's called us in to go out and to be a blessing. But in this day and age, we are facing some fairly tough and perilous times. You know, Jesus actually went on in that same scripture in Matthew 24. He said these words, he said, As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. Well, what was it like in the days of Noah? Well, let's go to Genesis chapter 6 and have a quick look. And this is what it says in Noah's day. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. Now, how much would, is that an apt description of the present day in which we live? You know, we, all tend, we tend to reel from one crisis to another in our present day. We've got a whole generation of kids now who are scared, witless about the future of this planet. You know, even they're scared about big government, big tech, big pharma, big business, big media, controlling lives and taking more and more of their life away. Only this week I heard this new term called eco-anxiety and it's a it's descriptor of these and affects particularly young people. In fact, they did a survey of young Australians where over 50% of people in this country right now under the age of 25 are either very concerned or extremely concerned about their future. So much so that a lot of them are saying, look, I'm not going to bring kids into this world. Now, you know, regardless of how, what you might think about that, this is just a reality of what we're facing. So there's this heightened emotional state called eco-anxiety is now a thing. And we've seen despair and depression and even our kids. Our kids are under so much attack you know, we've seen uh, just the onslaught of, of uh, teachings which we believe to be contrary to Scripture just being piled on our kids. And these kids now are just in so, so depressed. We've seen depression rates like we've never seen before. I mean, when I grew up, life was just so much simpler. You know, we rode our bikes around, we kicked the footy. You know, we didn't have to worry about all these things like gender and race and all this stuff being piled on kids these days and making them feel guilty about who they are and the country that they live in, which is their country. You know, but should we be surprised? I mean, I think we'd be more surprised if these things weren't happening, according to the Scriptures. You know, I know you didn't come to church today to become depressed yourself, so... I'm just setting up the scene. Yeah, sing another. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> but what's our response as a church? Do we, you know, do we just roll over and accept the inevitability of this? Do we just think life is just going to get worse and worse until Jesus comes back? Well, maybe. But then again, just maybe not. Maybe not. You know, so what is the church as response to all of this you know the key of course is not in political activism although if you're called to that as a Christian and you believe God's called you into the public sphere and to shape 
public policy, great, go for it. You've got our blessing and our backing. But it's not the role of the church as such in a more generic sense. You know, it's not going to be in political activism. It's going to be because our wrestle, our wrestle is not against flesh and blood, right? Ephesians 6 tells us that it's against the principalities and the powers, the rulers and the, uh, in the, spir- uh, the spiritual rulers in the high places. That's where the battle is. And so because it's a spiritual battle, we're going to take our cues from God's word, the Bible. And to that end, I want to take us to the last of our kings in our series That is King Josiah, a king who instituted one of the greatest reforms in his generation in a very, very dark time. The tide of evil was firmly against him in his day. And Josiah comes to the the throne at the tender age of eight years. I mean, we heard about Manasseh last week who came to the throne at 12. He went into a period of co-regency with his father, Hezekiah, But here is Josiah, actually the grandson of Manasseh, who came in during a very dark period, as Matt told us last week. The the majority of the reign through Manasseh was a very, very difficult and dark period in in Judah's history. Notwithstanding his repentance, and what an incredible story of God's grace last week that we heard. But Josiah brought about a range of reforms in his day. He reinstituted temple worship. He reprioritized the word of God. And he reinstituted the Passover celebration. All of these things which had long been lost. And he sparked a revival in his day that was countercultural. Now, isn't that what we want in this day? Don't we long to see people saved for Jesus? Don't we long to see people coming to faith? Somebody say amen. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I just want to know you're with me. But before we get to that, you know, let, let's, I just want to take one moment to actually reflect on a guy called Alexander Solzhenitsyn, which you may well have heard of. I read a book of his when I was a teenager, and like all teenage boys, I hated reading. But I read this one book called One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, if you know it. But man, that book impacted me. It was incredible. It was one of those books you had to read for school and all the other ones I never read, but that one I actually did. Now, Solzhenitsyn was a a man who was an outspoken critic of the Soviet um, oppression in his day, the political repression that was going on. And it's in 19... In fact, he was was sentenced to the gulags uh, back in the mid-30s to 40s for about a decade because he opposed the Soviets in, in power at the time. Now, in 1983, he's accepting this... Uh, prize called the Templeton Award. It's a literary prize. And on that, at, in that moment, he's reflecting on his childhood from 50 years earlier when he was a boy. He used to hear the old men of the villages speaking back then. And they were looking to, to saying why all these things had happened. And the reason that they give, they said this. They said, men have forgotten God. And that's why all this has happened. You know, we're in a world that's largely forgotten God, have we? are we not? You know, and so here he is now, he's accepting this award, 1983, 50 years further on. And by this time, he's, he's, written, he's read dozens of books on the revolution. He's contributed eight volumes of his own. He's heard hundreds of testimonies on it. And then he's, he's answered why all this had happened. It's up on the screen. It says, this is what he said, 1983, 50 years on. If I were asked today to formulate as concisely as possible, the main cause of the ruinous revolution that swallowed up some 60 million of our people, I could not put it any more accurately than to repeat, 
Men have forgotten God, and that's why all this has happened. Men, or we might more appropriately say these days, people, people have forgotten God. That's why I think things are happening as they are in our world right now, and they need to be reminded of who God is. Because I'm reminded of myself of Matthew 5 when Jesus said this, You are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. A lamp should be put on a lampstand, not hidden under a bowl, so that it can actually give light to everyone in the house. That's why the church exists, right? That's why we know Christ. The reason why is that we are to reveal Christ to a broken and hurting world who've largely forgotten God. A world in which where the wheels have fallen off, they get the wobbles and they've just fallen off and the, and, and the church has the answer. And so today I want to look, as I say, at King Josiah. Now Josiah was the grandson, as, as I said, of Manasseh who ruled in Judah for 55 years. And for the most part, as we heard last week, Manasseh lived a pretty vulgar and vile life. And, and, and add to that the brief reign of his father Ammon. Now Ammon was king for just two years. Two years. And he said he did much evil in the eyes of the Lord to the point where the palace servants essentially took him out behind the back of the woodshed and topped him after two years. And so it's in this sort of environment that this spiritual heritage handed to Josiah that he ascends to the throne as a boy at an eight-year-old. Can you imagine? I mean, eight. It's a three year, grade three kid now, day and age. A boy who had no godly model to follow for the most part. Born into a really unpredictable and volatile political realm. I mean, prior to that, the Assyrians had sort of been in and around the countryside and they, they tried to make this massive attack on Jerusalem, which ultimately failed, and there was this power vacuum which was left. But what they did do is they brought with them all their idolatrous practices, and that's what Manasseh and Amon and all the rest of them got right into. You might say, in fact, in that day that people had forgotten God and that's why all this was happening. The nation was out of control and it was heading towards obliteration. The judgment of God was coming. You'd have to ask the question, well, what possible difference could a child make in an environment such as that? Well, the answer is he made all the difference, you know. Especially this kid who, who you know, seen his grandpa sacrifice all these, has some of his own relatives, in fact, of these satanic gods back in the day. In fact, Manasseh had said he shed so much innocent blood that Jerusalem was filled with it from one end of it to the other. Now, you'd think that handed that sort of pedigree, you wouldn't have a chance at all. He may have felt like a lot of people in our day, just give up, just roll over, forget it, and the sweet by and by, Jesus come back and save us all. But you know that he didn't. And that's why I think today his example can actually speak to us. Because we we need to get into the ring, right? We need to take up this fight against the enemy. We need to plough into this in prayer and we need to be bold in our witness. Because these powers of darkness, they're threatening us. But we fight, as I said before, from a position of strength and ultimate victory. So let's not ever forget that. So let's pick it up. Let's go to the Bible. What a good thing to do. Second Chronicles in verse 34. Now it says Josiah was eight years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed the ways of his father David. Now David's not his literal father. I mean he's many generations prior. But effectively his, his ancestor is following in the footsteps of David. Not turning aside to the right or to the left. 
And in the eighth year of his reign, so eighth year, and he's now the age of 16, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father, David. Good move, Josiah. So first thing I want to glean from, our, from Josiah's life is simply this, which we can apply to our own lives, is Josiah chose wholehearted devotion to God. He was sold out for God. He wasn't half-hearted. I mean, he says he followed in the footsteps of his father, David. It's interesting to reflect on the life of Solomon, which I preached a message on this maybe four or five months ago, the cost of compromise, it was called. And it looked at Solomon, and it actually says this about Solomon in 1 Kings eleven six. It says, Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David, his father, had done. It's an absolute, complete contrast to the life of Josiah, who was following in the footsteps of David. See, Solomon had a divided heart and ultimately led to a divided kingdom, whereas David had a, had a devoted heart and he was a man of prayer and of worship and of the word. And that's how it, what it's describing here of, of Josiah. A man who is wholeheartedly devoted to God, surrendering to his will. In fact, I'm going to jump to the end of Josiah's life just very briefly in a parallel account in 2 Kings in 23. And this is what it says of Josiah at the end of his life. It says, before him, that's Josiah, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his mind, with all his heart, and with all his strength. Do those words sound familiar? According to the law of Moses, and no one like him arose. With all his mind, with all his heart, and with all his strength. I mean, that's echoing, of course, when the teacher of the law came to Jesus and said, Teacher, which, which is the greatest command? You know, to which Jesus points back to Deuteronomy 6, 5, where he says, You love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. In other words, be completely and utterly devoted to God. That's got to be the starting point for all of us. That's where we need to be in this day and age. If we're going to do anything, let's dig deep wells. Let's get ourselves completely enmeshed in the presence of God through prayer, through worship, through the word of God. Let's prioritize those things. Because it really doesn't matter what you do otherwise, you know. If we don't build on the foundation stone that is Jesus Christ with gold and silver and precious stones, then it is wood, hay and stubble that will just get blown away, burned. I want to make another connection from 2 Chronicles. It's another verse. This is a great verse with this awesome promise attached to it. Because it says this, 2 Chronicles 16.9, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to show himself strong. That's the promise. God will show himself strong. He'll show up and he'll do mighty miracles. For those whose hearts are completely his. Now, God's eyes are roaming around, looking around to and fro, ranging throughout the earth to show himself strong to those whose hearts are going to be completely his. You know, he's going to track our motives, scrutinize our hearts, uh, check and sift our attitudes. And, you know, in the case of Josiah, he looked around and, and his eyes rested. His eyes rested on a young boy who had everything against him. Might God be doing the same for us in our day. Because Josiah is just one example, right? Just one example of a boy who stood strong in his generation. And God wants to show himself strong in our day. 
if there is but one Josiah in our midst? Is that you? Is God calling you in this day to get serious about following him? And for Josiah, it just wasn't the orientation of his heart, the inward life, you know, he's wholeheartedly devoted to God. But there was a moral component to this because it goes on to say that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He did. So it wasn't just inward, his own interior life, his devotional life. This was about his moral uh, life, the way he conducted himself. And so it's not enough just to have our hearts turned inwardly and upwardly to God, but we actually have to live this out. I see too many people who, you know, it's a Sunday to Sunday thing. It's on again, off again, you know, but Josiah was one who weaved specific habits into his life. And so he, it kept him on a path. He was walking in the right way, following the ways of his father, David, as I say, in the word, in prayer and in worship. And it has to be seen in us as well. It's not just enough to have a good heart orientation. So the second thing is, that, is simply this. Josiah honoured God with his life. Not only was he inwardly focused with wholehearted devotion, he was actually honouring God with his life. He lived a godly life. And his internal life was also strengthened you know, outwardly. And we read in verse 3, in fact, as he matured, it started to become obvious to everybody around about him. Let's read on. It says, in his 12th year, now 12th year as king, now he's at the age of 20, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of high places, Asherah poles and idols. So, you know, when he's making these great reforms, we're t- in, in our current day, we're talking about a kid who's in our, uh, in our kids' ministry, our youth group, and in this case, our young adults, making major reforms. And he's now purging the, the nation of every single trace of idolatry, all those things that were a snare that tore people away from God and turned their hearts away. Let's keep reading, verse 4. Now, under his direction, the altars of the Baals were torn down, He cut to pieces the incense altars that were above them and smashed the Asherah poles and the idols. These he broke to pieces and scattered over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. It's like a way of saying, there you go, look at that. Now here he is, he's tearing down the Baals and the Asherah poles. We often talk about these things, but just very quickly, side note, Baals were basically just a a, a generic word for what we might use as Lord in our current day in our current day and so most often referred to foreign gods from pagan nations and Asherah was uh, sometimes referred to as the queen of heaven effectively a goddess if you will a a female deity Uh, it was somewhat akin to what we might know as a totem pole in our day but basically it was something that was used in the fertility rites you know and ritual prostitution was a part of it in order to uh, somehow influence the gods in their terms to actually bless their land and make it fertile of course, all of that was in stark contrast to what God had revealed about himself as in his role of both creating and sustaining the earth. Because that sort of idolatry was everywhere. The northern kingdom, only eight decades earlier, had been decimated by the Assyrian Empire. And there was just mass, mass death of the people in that part of the world. You'd think that would be a sobering a sobering um, thing for the, the people of Judah to consider when they saw what happened to their, their northern neighbours. But instead, they sank deeper and deeper into idolatry. 
As most of that happened under the reign of Manasseh, as we read last week, who reigned for 55 years. And we had prophets like Micah and, and Zephaniah and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Habakkuk, all prophesying into those moments. But it was just falling on deaf ears. And so when Josiah comes to the throne as this boy, he, he, just, he walks into a world where anarchy and idolatry are ingrained in the culture. But instead of just drifting, which he could well have done, like the others that had gone, even like his old man. My third and final point is this, that Josiah took action. He took action. So not only was it a devotional thing, not only was it a moral thing, but now it's an ethical thing. It's the way in which he acts. He starts to take action. And that's the other part of the great commandment, of course. You know, not only love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength, but to love your neighbour as yourself. In other words, there's got to be an ethical dimension to our faith. And so what's he do? He, we're just about to, we just read about how he's um, uh, pulled down the bales and the asherahs. I mean, it's easy when you're doing renos to pull stuff down, right? Wreck things, bang walls down, pull cupboards out. That's the easy part, right? The tough stuff's when you've got to start to rebuild it. And so he turns his attention to the temple, which for 250 years had been neglected. We've got to go way, way back to King Joash, another mighty young guy, king, uh, mighty God, guy in God. For 250 years, the temple had laid in rack and ruin. And so this is what it says now in verse 8 of 2 Chronicles 34. It says, in the 18th year of Josiah's reign. So now he's 26. To purify the land and the temple, he sent Shaphan, son of Azaliah, and Maasiah, the ruler of the city, with Joah, the son of Joahaz, the recorder, to repair the temple of the Lord, his God. Not about the names of the people, but they were influential people, they were craftsmen, they were leaders. So he's assembling the right people, and he swings into action, he starts to think, put things in right order. In other words, his outward working is intensely, intensely practical. He's doing stuff that counts. It reminds me uh, actually of a, a verse from James, in chapter 2, verse 8, which says, You show me your faith without deeds. I'm going to show you my faith by my deeds. You know, it's not enough just to be hearers of the word only. We've got to be doers of the word also. There must be an outward ethical dimension to our life. And we can have our inner life sorted like Josiah had, and we can have our moral compass pointing north like Josiah, but we've got to show our faith by our deeds. Because it's in doing so. It's right here as he's actually going in and um, uh, setting up and re-establishing the temple that they actually discover this thing. Strange thing. Looks a bit like this. It was called the book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. Most likely the book of Deuteronomy that they found. And as they would have read that, they started to read to the king from this book book of Deuteronomy and as the king listens no doubt he would have got to that part in Deuteronomy 28 when it actually starts to lay out all the blessings and the curses blessings for following God the curses for not doing so and turning their back on him and so it is he would have got to this part Deuteronomy 38 28 rather 36 and 37 says the Lord will drive you that's the Israelites and the king in this case Josiah you set out over you this is written centuries before to a nation unknown to you or your ancestors, and there you will worship other gods, gods of wood and stone, and you'll become a thing of horror, a byword, and an object of ridicule among all the peoples where the Lord will drive you. 
I mean, what a wake-up call as he's reading this and thinking, whoa, time to get serious. It's one of those uh, moments where he just would have come to his senses. Because if we read a parallel account in 2 Kings 22, it says, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. It's an act of repentance, identification with the wrongdoing of his people. He gave these orders. He says, go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah about what is written in this book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that burns against us because those who have gone before us have not obeyed the words of this book. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written there concerning us. Right? Written ages before, but concerning us. So he's taking ownership. He's taking action. He starts with repentance, retearing his robes. There's an acknowledgement that he, as the representative of the nation of Israel, as its king, was taking personal responsibility. And, and, and that's what we, we need to do in our day if we want to see God move. To get our prayer life right, to get our devotional life right, to get our moral life, the way we act towards others, and to get our ethical side of things sorted. And so it is. Josiah prioritises the word and worship and later institutes the Passover again. And so he is, without a doubt, a giant in his day. Small guy, but what a giant he was, standing tall in a really, really dark period to the point where Josiah actually stayed the hand of God through his actions for a whole generation. 31 years he reigned, and it was a good reign. And after him, just three kings came. It lasted 11 and a half years before Nebuchadnezzar rolled into town and took them all out. 11 and a half years it took for, after Josiah was gone for the whole thing just to go to pulp. Pardon the French. As Josiah prioritised God's word, though, he laid a foundation it was a foundation because when they went into exile, they were there for 80 years, 60 years, whatever it was. can't remember now. Someone help me. 80? It was a long time. A couple of generations. But the thing that sustained them during that period was the word of God. The word of God, which Josiah had reinstituted amongst God's people. Not only for the exile, but there was 400 silent years that followed. The intertestamental period between when the Old Testament was closed and the New. Again, the word of God sustained God's people through that and laid the seedbed for the saviour of the world to come 600 years on. That is the significance of the contribution of Josiah, just one young man who took his faith seriously, who prioritised things as he should, who had a wholehearted devotion to God, who lived by God's standards and took action. What I take out of this is it doesn't matter about your age, your upbringing, your external circumstances, all of those things are irrelevant. It doesn't matter. If you come in here today, regardless of your background, whether you've been a Christian for one minute or a hundred years, doesn't matter. God can use you if you're like this guy. Because who knows, God might just use you in that harvest of souls that I referred to earlier. Maybe God's calling you. Maybe in, this, in the hearing of my voice today, you want to take your stand for God. So imagine if we had just one or a dozen or a hundred Josiahs in our day. What a difference that could make. And it can start with you. It can start with me. Just think about what God could do in you and through you if you were fully surrendered to Him. Because there's hope. There is hope. 
We don't just roll over and allow these evil things to come in upon us. As the church submits itself under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, we can be the salt of the earth and the light of the world to a people who have forgotten God. Can we be the ones who can show them the way back to the Father? I believe we can. I believe we can. Let's take our cues from Josiah today. Let's pray. Mighty God, we're so grateful for your word. We're so thankful, Lord, for your love. Today, God, we thank you that we can hear the example of one young man who was prepared to take his stand for you in a world that had otherwise forgotten you. Lord, would you draw our hearts today to be like that? Cause us to repent. Cause us, Lord, to seek after you with all our heart. Oh, dear God, we're calling on you to help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Bless you. Bless you.